This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's uh, get rolling on what's going to happen today. Uh, we've talked about the shorting ho- crisis here in the city and in the province, for that matter. There's two main factors to that. Uh, one is stock. We don't have enough facilities, of course, for housing. And price. Well, a uh, city councilor has an idea that uh, may actually solve both of those problems. Ward 3 Councilor Matthew Green wants the city to explore the idea of laneways. It could be used as, used rather as locations for tiny homes. He is the uh, city councilor, of course, for Ward 3. Matthew Green joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, councilor, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me on your show this morning, Bill. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you about the concept of this. We uh, had a discussion, I guess, Matt, a couple of months ago with somebody from the Social Planning and Research Council about this. Uh, and, and I guess it came up because there were a couple of houses on laneways and people were saying, hey, why can't we do more of this? Uh, talk to me about how you kind of took that idea and have, are running with it now. Sure. So I first need to give credit to Councillor Jason Farr, who's working with the SPRC in Good Shepherd on the Clarence Project, brought the laneway concept to council. And basically what that does is it says that a lot of our coach houses, garden homes, granny suites that are abutting our laneways become legalized, and we encourage that type of density on site as, a, as of right as a duplex. So those would be secondary suites on people's properties that they could then rent out at a much lower cost, at a deeper cost, because the units are a lot smaller. What I've proposed this week is actually the inclusion of standalone lots that are micro in size, that are the tiny homes, and I'm sure if you've watched any of the videos on social media, seen what they're doing in Detroit, Wisconsin, upstate New York, you'll know that these tiny homes accommodate a deeply vulnerable uh, community in our, in our city that we're seeing kind of emerging out of the tent city phenomenon where people are being completely displaced. They're living in the rough along our rail lines and along our escarpments. And I want to create a transition for them to have a dignified place to live. Some of these folks will never go to shelters. They might not want to live in city housing. And so this allows them to have some privacy. And then, of course, the most important thing that I think everybody can agree on, the idea of land tenure. So the idea that after you know, five, ten years, that they can actually own those little pieces of land and have that type of security for their housing. It, it makes all kinds of sense. And when I got thinking about this after I had my discussion with uh, the SPCRC, Matt, was uh, we watch Home and Garden TV an awful lot on, and, and, you know, the Property Brothers and all sorts of stuff. But there's also one, I can't remember the name of the show now, but it's all about tiny houses. And I thought, why don't, why don't cities do something like that? Because not everybody wants nor anybody afford a, a large house. And this is, this is technically a, a roof over your head. It's, it's a great idea. It is. And so I'm speaking to, again, the most vulnerable people that yeah. if you were to look at a subdivision where each house is subdivided into these lots that goes for, you know, $450,000, you could take those lots and that $450,000 and build 10 little accommodations for people. Now, keep in mind, it's not just for people who are coming out of extreme homelessness. As you've identified, there's also a market, uh, uh, you know, a middle class market or a minimalist market who would prefer to downsize and not have all of their life's savings and investments in their real estate. The way that we do real estate in North America and across the West, I think is a dangerous market to be in. We are essentially commodifying people's existence. And once you get priced out of a market, you're essentially priced out of your, your, your survival. You're priced out of your home. Well, and we've seen that happen already, haven't we, with the housing boom that happened uh, where people, some people anyway, were forced to move out of this area and, and try to find accommodation someplace else because prices just got so crazy there for the longest time. And we had cases of gentrification, uh, people that maybe wanted to live in the city but simply couldn't afford the city anymore. It's, this pretty much addresses that. 
It, well, it, so I won't pretend that this is the silver bullet. For no, of course that. not. What this does is add one more tool in our planning toolbox to legalize existing laneway suites, take a, what is otherwise a liability. You'll know that in Ward 3, we have one of the oldest housing stocks in the city, and we have about two-thirds of all the laneways. And a lot of the calls I get in my office are about how they're unkept, they're underutilized, they're not safe. So by animating them with people, you bring back that vibrancy to those spaces. And then if you look at some of our empty lots, uh, whether they're parking lots or old industrial lots that have been demoed, we have all this space. And what I'm suggesting is that in a transition from extreme homelessness or for seniors that are living in deep poverty or students or what have you, we provide an opportunity to create these communities where we can also provide place-based social care and services. So for some folks that are coming you know, out of situations of, of mental health or addictions or what have you, we would actually bring services right to their doorsteps and in their communities and build those relationships and help to lift people out of that type of uh, precarious vulnerability. I'm just in my mind's eye as you're talking about this, thinking of the, a number of them that I know in the downtown area. It wasn't even behind my, my grandparents' house at uh, Robert and Mary Street uh, that we used to run up and down and play in the alley. And and the reason why, of course, is that, you know, those days they didn't have garages and they had alleyways and laneways in the back and garages there. Most of those garages are long gone now and the alleyways are still there. But there's a logistical thing I wanted to ask you about, though. I wonder if you've talked to staff about this, because historically, Matt, as you know, the city has basically said, look, we're not looking after alleyways anymore. Uh, we don't want to maintain them. We're certainly not going to plow them. Uh, and there were some logistical concerns about that, too. Uh, this would basically be a, a turnabout, total turnabout, I guess, in policy then. In, in other words, the city would have to start bringing these alleyways back in, and there's, there's concerns about garbage collection, about plowing them, things of that nature. Have you looked into that, and, and obviously the cost that, that would be involved with that? So the laneway report is about allowing for um, these processes to play out. I don't think that they necessarily have to make that conclusion. I think that you can have accommodations in assumed alleyways where they have these laneways and allow uh, residents to perhaps take a shared ownership uh, uh, to be able to service the back alleyways and to make that work. I'm not suggesting that we, in a sweeping policy change, bring all of our unassumed alleyways back into the general levy for the taxpayer. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that with the laneway project, we take... uh, properties that are accessible from the rear, and we allow them to be accessible through the house. The garbage collection, everything else, that would still happen at the front of the house. So you could imagine it'd be like, you know, in my ward, Bill, where we have already a lot of existing illegal units. They are, in some cases, uh, not fire safe, they are not dignified, and they are not adequate for people. We already have that in a kind of illegal way, which is what brings about the whole conversation around landlord licensing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's you're, you're right, there are complexities from this. What we're doing is we're exploring it, and that was Councillor Farr who brought that forward. What I've done, though, is added the idea of ownership, which for people living in deep poverty, even, even a tiny little plot of land gives them the security to know they're never going to be displaced. Because if you're living in a tent in, near Mary Street or off of Gage or Sherman, and you're in a situation where you're squatting, eventually you're going to get moved along. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing that rise happen. And you only have to look to Toronto, where they think they've had over 100 occurrences of 10 cities. We have it here in Hamilton. I've spoken to folks that are living in the rough. I've gone down to to do my own personal outreach and spoken to them. You know, these are vulnerable people who have no interest in being in shelters or in being in, uh, in, you know, some of our our city housing situations. They just want to be left 
to their own and they just want to have a place of safety. And so I just want to make sure that it's dignified. I want to make sure they have access to sanitation. I want to make sure they have access to heat. These are the essentials of life that I believe every person living in this country, whether they're a citizen or not, deserves to have. And and your point's well taken. I mean, obviously you do want to look after the vulnerable, uh, and there's always this concern about housing stock and and affordable housing. And and I know that you've been talking to the province about this and to the federal government about this for years now, as have other city councils around here, and the money just hasn't been flowing to the extent that it has. But uh, you get a bigger bang for your buck if you're going to build units like this, though. That would make an awful lot of sense. Well, you know, I always have to work within our parameters. I'm realistic, and you're quite right. We've been knocking on the federal door for quite some time. This federal government said they were going to have a national housing strategy. What they did is take taxpayer dollars and create a private infrastructure bank for corporations and developers. That money is not trickling down to the most vulnerable. It's certainly not seeing any type of cause or or impact in the housing crisis that we have here in Hamilton. So as a city councillor, I just have to work with what I got. And what we have are, I think, overly cumbersome rules. Right now, the Ontario Building Code says that you can only build units above 425 square feet that have a certain percentage of uh, lot size to the actual building. So I want to relax some of those things. I want to remove some of those restrictions uh, to give us more flexibility in our housing uh, options. What about the logistics of where these can go. I mean, you're absolutely right. I don't want people to get the impression uh, from our conversation here that each and every alleyway is now is going to be targeted and say we're going to start building housing on that. So some places it's just not going to fit. Do you have any idea at all exactly how much of this could actually be done uh, that, uh, that, that, that could actually accommodate some of the stuff that you're talking about here? Well, again, making the distinction, you have the laneway housing, which is what Councillor Farber brought forward, and I'm talking about actual tiny homes Mm -hmm. and building out little communities like you would a subdivision, but with a much higher individual density of the units. And so you only have to look to some of our empty lots and some of our, uh, you know, city-owned properties. And then I think this conversation will unlock, you know, people like Habitat for Humanity, Options for Homes, Indwell, Kiwanis, people who are already in this space that are building, you know, for Habitat for Humanity, they might spend $250,000 to house one family. And, you know, maybe that has three or four or five people in it. But the idea is that we could, out of that $250,000, using the same build model, we could probably build five to seven units. So so the, the, the frameworks are already out there with some of our social services. And what I want to do, uh, being elected in government, is just remove some of the barriers to be able to free some of our groups to be able to address this critical need. You know, in past councils, I guess a number of them actually took a road trip to a number of cities to investigate light rail transit. Uh, Councillor Ferguson, I know, was on that committee. Councillor Russ Powers, who was representing Dundas at the time, and others. I think it predated your time on council. Wouldn't be a bad idea to have a look around at uh, places like, uh, well, Detroit, as you mentioned, I know, has a, has a very successful enterprise like this as well, and there are other communities uh, to so get a look-see. I know, I know it's on social media, but sometimes, you know, uh, no, a trip and, and, right. and eyes on that sort of thing, it actually maybe swing a few people over to this thing. So I actually have a trip uh, scheduled or planned potentially for the end of October to do just that, Bill. I'm looking at this crisis, and for me as a counselor, and I talk to my residents, and we certainly have lots of concerns, potholes and waste collection and all that stuff, speed bumps. But when you see somebody living in this city in conditions that would parallel, in some cases, refugee camps in the third world, you know what your most important priority is. And, I, and for me, now that I've seen that, 
you can't unsee it and you have to do what's right. And so uh, we're thinking deeply about this in our office. I'm trying to get as many people on board and excited about this opportunity. I think that we have a, a, a caring city. I think that we have an empathic city. You know, you have groups like the Hamilton Community Foundation who's doing great work, the Rotary Club, Kiwanis and others. And I want to bring everybody to the table, all hands on deck and take a look at one of the ways that we can take people from living in tents to living in places that are a little bit more secure. Sounds like a fabulous idea, and obviously some logistics need to be worked out, but uh, I'm sure the staff will get to work on that ASAP, and it'll be great to get the private sector in too. Matt, thank you so much for this, and uh, good luck with this. We'll stay in touch as uh, you uh, pursue this down the road. I appreciate the time, Bill. Have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. That's uh, Councilor Matthew Green, of course, Councilor for Ward 3. Little tiny houses and laneways. Uh, not a bad idea worth exploring. And and go on uh, social media. As a matter of fact, you can just Google this. Uh, there is one of these in Detroit and uh, in upstate New York. I think a couple of communities have these as well. So it's already working in some places. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the uh, concerns about Hess Village uh, have been... Uh, well documented, I think, uh, predating even uh, the uh, 11 or 12 years we've been back on the air doing this show because this has gone back to, I guess, the mid-1990s. And, and it's a good news, bad news situation, obviously. A lot of people would go to Hess Village, but uh, there was some rowdyism, some vandalism, and some uh, lewd behavior, frankly, from time to time. Uh, that city council of the day back in the 1990s decided to do something about it and instituted uh, paid duty, but uh, they then went back to the to people that own the facilities there at Hess Village and said, you got to pay for it. Uh, it's not going to go on the backs of taxpayers. Well, they didn't sit well with them. There could be a change in that policy now. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Ward 2 Councilor for the downtown area, uh, Councilor Jason Farr, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Jay. How are you doing today? Very good, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on at Hess, what has happened. I think I think everybody's aware of the fact that uh, there were some concerns down there at Hess. What's, what's the status, first of all, with the area now? Well, I think the big point we made, there was a few yesterday, that uh, it's not what it was in 2010 when uh, just prior to the next term of council, the bylaw was uh, instituted and that uh, entertainment district bylaw included this uh, paid duty uh, program where uh, Hamilton Police Services um, had it within their purview Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights to uh, staff up to 10 paid duty officers and uh, build 100% to the uh, proprietors, the business folks in that particular district. Um, obviously, you and I have talked many times on this in the past, and uh, I, I was elected soon after, started to kind of question the validity of um, such a two-tiered tax, a, a, a special tax for only one segment of uh, of uh, businesses. But at the same time, I think even with conversations with you or in council, we were very, very respectful to the fact that, uh, of course, there were challenges, as you mentioned off the top and as we've talked about over the years. And uh, we needed to think outside the box, I guess, at a certain point in time before my time to try to address those challenges and came up with this this bylaw. Yesterday, in a 7-2 vote, um, given the climate of today that we talked about just a few uh, weeks ago in Hess Village, um, we decided that uh, perhaps this is dated, it's unique to Hamilton, and it's something we should uh, consider X-naying on, and, and that's what we did in a 7-2 vote to be ratified on Wednesday. And the two reasons, Bill, real quick. Sure. Um, you know, back in 2010, the average attendance on any given weekend night would be somewhere around 4,500 people. Uh, we had our licensing uh, director ask staff throughout this summer of 2017 on various nights to go and uh, measure attendance. Some weekends there was maybe a couple of hundred. 
uh, at peak somewhere around 1500. Uh, Phil Mason, who was with Hamilton Police Services, who was at the microphone and, and um, uh, answering questions yesterday in planning committee, uh, himself through Hamilton Police Services uh, measured some attendance on one night. He had a number around 2,000 on one night in June. But uh, clearly, even with the Hamilton Police Services one-night survey and the 2017 survey throughout many nights through our licensing department, we do not have the attendance we once had in, in Hess Village in our one and only defined entertainment district. The other piece is um, we have a bylaw that folks who run businesses through their many protests over the years about the unfair practice of paid duty program exclusive to Hamilton where business owners are paying this extra tax had found, I don't want to call it a loophole, but um, they found a way around having to pay into the paid duty program. We identified a couple of establishments. Yeah, let's, let's talk about how they did that. Well, there, it's a formula, and it's based on seating capacity and the percentage of seating capacity to your overall footprint. 65%, and you're not defined as a nightclub anymore. You, you're not, you don't have a dance floor, I guess, and so you're defined as a restaurant and therefore don't have to pay into it. And so a few establishments, we're not sure exactly of the number, uh, just put a whole bunch of stools around and uh, therefore we're exempt. Um, we're at a position in 2015 where 15 uh, different bar and restaurant nightclub owners were divvying up the total pol- police paid duty uh, fee. And in 2014, that was down to about 10. Yesterday, we learned I had a stat that was seven. It's now six divvying up that paid duty uh, fee because some got wise to uh, the bylaw and got around it by placing extra seating in their um, overall capacity. So, so that's actually uh, played a role too. And I think the decision, the seven-two decision, uh, by our planning committee uh, yesterday, the nine members of council that uh, were present, ten are on the planning committee. All right, a couple of questions. Was it ever determined uh, that that bylaw was legal or illegal? Because I know I talked to some of the the uh, establishment owners over the years as well, Jay, and and they were questioning that. Has that been settled at, at any point? Well, and, and uh, yeah, you, you jumped on that one probably in 2014. Yeah. And we had a few delegates come before us that were owners and that did question the legality. It was up to, excuse me, Bill, those particular uh, um, uh, business owners to uh, actually prove that in court. It, it got a little ways, but it didn't go the, the distance. And um, so in Hamilton, it was never actually uh, proven in court. So it, it wasn't be, challenged in court, really? It was never truly challenged in court, no. But, you know, there's other jurisdictions, I think Calgary, I want to say Halifax, maybe Montreal, that once had a similar paid duty program that pulled out. And no doubt one of the major factors was because it is a two-tiered tax and it's exclusive to one area and it's, it's, it was unfair. Uh, in, in the eyes of, um, of, of those municipalities with entertainment districts. One of the key things, though, and I'm glad we have this opportunity again and that you've been following the story, this is never about telling the police how to police. It's specific to that part of the bylaw that is asking a certain segment of businesses to pay an extra tax. Police uh, police the way they feel they need to police, and, and they always have and they always will. None of us around the horseshoe yesterday were trying to tell police, here's how you can be more effective, or here's what you need to focus on. The one thing now, if this is ratified at council, we'll be able to do in Hess Village what we do everywhere else. One thing that was uh, on the record yesterday and been said, and you and I have talked about over many years, is our Hamilton Police Services do a great job. 
they can identify today one or two establishments that are what they would call challenging establishments in Hess Village, just like we have challenging establishments outside of our entertainment district. We have a process in place, like most cities. It's called a licensing tribunal. And when you hold a license to run an establishment, you're expected to run it in uh, orderly fashion and in a way uh, that's subject to all those conditions of the license. If you step out of line, you go to the licensing tribunal, and there's all sorts of uh, punitive uh, damages that could be uh, uh, determined by that tribunal, uh, whether it's you, to the greatest extreme, lose your license, you can't renew, therefore you're out of business, or there's conditions on your license, like, and it's happened in the past, you're a challenge. You need pay-duty police officers that you yourself have to pay because you've proven uh, through a licensing tribunal that you're unable to uh, act accordingly as a challenged operator uh, and to the letter of your particular business license. So we're going to be able to do that now. And for some reason, uh, at least that none of us can find, that has not occurred in Hess Village. While we can identify through Hamilton Police Services, and they verified that, that there are challenged establishments, it's never gotten to the point of a licensing tribunal where they specifically uh, are, are, are they have their license addressed in that kind of capacity. Why, now, why has that never happened? That. I, I sat on that tribunal many, many years ago, uh, and you're right. I mean, we dealt with establishments in the East End, uh, in other parts of the city, uh, in Stony Creek, uh, but uh, and of course there's the sandbar. We don't even want to go down that road now. Mm-hmm. But but never has village. Why not? It was was the that a no touch area? Yeah, uh, you even closed a few down, and and rightly so. I mean, there was one on James North that we could talk about yep. for half an hour yep. that that deserved it. I mean, the the, the carrying on that was occurring there. So uh, just before my time. But uh, I, I can't answer that question. But what I can say is we have a, a, a director of licensing who's a former deputy uh, police chief of Hamilton. He has a great rapport established with Hamilton Police Services. He works very well with the women and men in blue here in the city of Hamilton. And he, that's just the kind of point person we need to work with the police who have already identified a few challenging establishments that unfortunately, and we've been seeing it for years, give the entire village a black eye. It's just like when we look at uh, the populations over the years, while it's been declining, that have been going to the village. Like anywhere else, when you have a whole lot of people getting together in one place, unfortunately, there's a few bad apples. And we'd hate to have those few bad apples be representative of the overall population visiting that place. For the most part, these are good people. A lot of them are young people, uh, young professionals. A lot of couples have met in Hess Village over the years and married and have children and are feeding our economy. I mean, it's it's. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic or uh, painting a rosy, rosy picture. I know there's challenges, but, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, if we can identify those challenges, deal specifically with those challenges, just like we do everywhere else in the city, we can solve these problems. All right. But let me, let me expand that point then, uh, because you mentioned that, uh, that yesterday Hamilton Police Services were represented there, uh, and uh, the officer who actually spoke there, Officer Mason, uh, my understanding is suggested that he's not so sure that you should be taking the, uh, the the extra officers off there. He still thinks that notwithstanding the reduced numbers of attendees that are going to Hess Village, that they still need to be there. Uh, but apparently the committee didn't uh, didn't agree with that. Why not? Well, one of the reasons may be um, the superintendent did say that. I mean, they've been saying that for years. If you have an ability to budget outside of your own police budget, all divisions are challenged budget-wise. Why wouldn't you want to try to stick to that plan? Uh, but but one of the reasons maybe uh, uh, behind the 7-2 vote in favor of scrapping the entertainment bylaw and therefore the paid duty program 
is that this summer alone, uh, with the police being able to use their discretion, and they've done a great job doing that, there have been weekends where they've had no paid duty. I mean, that speaks to the volumes uh, and the attendance issue that we've talked about right off the top. They've probably averaged around six. There's few weekends where they actually, according to the bylaw, under their own discretion, have done the maximum 10 paid duty officers. Usually it's six or less or none. So, I mean, already you can see the, the, the need has decreased to a level where, you know, I mean, it, it helps the argument about why we do it in the first place. There's other ways, of course, to tackle the issues, and especially when we can identify one or two challenging establishments. Yeah, but let me ask you about about the work that they're doing there, because it's been a number of years now that these paid duty officers are there. Uh, is have they made arrests? I mean, is is there a crime a reduction in crime, a reduction in 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 the the concern about safety that uh, that probably was was the catalyst for this in the first place? In other words, has, have they done their job to the point right now where they're not needed anymore? Well, no, they've absolutely done their job, and they continue to do their job. And that question is a good question. It was asked, and and uh, I don't like to put words in Phil Mason, Superintendent Mason's mouth. He's just a great copper, um, and he's he and I have worked together on this. I mean, we didn't agree on this, but uh, he's he's a great guy to work with, and his staff, and they were there yesterday. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Bill. They they I think that. Pretty much to answer your question, it's kind of flatlined. It's consistent over many, many years, the, the level of, of crime that they're, they're uh, um, prosecuting through Hess Village, ultimately prosecuting. Um, and remember, it's not just pay-duty officers. There's, they have mounted police. They have beat officers. They have action officers. They have officers, if they're available and on shift that evening, that would come around. So there's a, there's a whole other area, a much larger area, in my opinion, of uh, police expertise that are also part of policing Hess Village. Now, I don't know for certain, and I did ask that question years ago, I just don't have the answer and I don't want to guess, how many paid duty officers on that paid duty, basically overtime shift, actually fill out the arrest form and take the culprit back to the station and go to court three weeks later. I, I don't have that. I don't know the ratio from those police officers that are just on a regular shift, whether they're on one of the horses or are an action officer on a bike or, or just patrolling on a beat uh, versus paid duty officers making arrests. But uh, certainly it's, it's, uh, it's a large team of policing has been for many, many years, and outside of paid duty, there's a very impressive enforcement effort happening, and, and, and they're doing a great job with respect to Hess Village, and of course, throughout the downtown. All right, there's a logistical thing going on here, too, uh, and that goes to ward boundaries. Uh, Hess Village, obviously, is not just Hess Street. It goes off in a couple of directions on either side, and mm-hmm. uh, just a block or so away, of course, as you know, Jay, is uh, Queen Street, which is the boundary, which is Ward 1. Uh, a lot of the concerns over the years are problems that started at Hess Village and then spread out to some of these other neighborhoods. And you know that Councillor Aidan Johnson uh, spoke about that yesterday as well. Uh, and you've seen that with some of the stuff that goes on downtown. There were a couple of murders a few years ago uh, that were believed uh, to, to have the, the, the pe- perpetrators. Anyway, we're, we're in Hess Village, and it kind of spread out to play various places after the bars closed and things like that. So there's a spillover effect here right now. How do you address that? I mean, how do police look after what's going on there? That's not physically going on at Hess Village, but but clearly it started there and spread to these other neighborhoods, and, and those residents are still concerned about it. Well, I'd, I'd like to put the residents' minds at ease. Um, Johnson and Johnson, both councillors, the two that were opposed to this, made those historic arguments. 
I haven't had a call to my office bill in years about issues respecting spillover into the neighborhoods. It's not just Ward 1, obviously, that has some residential neighborhoods outside of Hess Village. Uh, it's Ward 2. And in fact, the whole paid duty program, and right from the top, where you were talking about how it was established a long time ago, was actually the result of the bar owners working with those neighbors, public urination, nuisance, drug use. There was issues that happened before and mostly after closing time. And they agreed to split the cost of, of a couple of paid duty officers, and then it you know, was a snowball out of control, and then 10 officers solely at the uh, cost of the, the uh, business owners was the result, and that's what we asked yesterday in planning committee. But police are still around. Like I had said, there's still officers on beat. If there are issues, they can still... Uh, tackle those issues after hours. It's, it's not like we're saying we're getting rid of police in Hess Village. There's police in Hess Village. There's police throughout uh, the downtown core. And, and those issues, while they've been greatly mitigated based on basically the fact that attendance is down, uh, based on there's so many more entertainment area options for people throughout the downtown core, a little Augusta, uh, the, the King William Art Walk, James Street North, the waterfront for a while there, and definitely again, coming soon but there there there's 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 an attendance uh issue that directly correlates with less issues of uh you know patrons disembarking because there's less of them is this a problem that's just going to other areas though to, to your point about augusta and other places like that are you are you seeing an increase in, in concern there in these east neighborhoods now no, and not, well, I mean, there's concerns everywhere. I mean, you talked about murder, and I don't want to downplay. It's a terrible, terrible thing, the tragedies that happened in and around the border of Hess Village over the years, but also throughout the city. We don't have paid, pro, paid duty programs anywhere else where there's trouble. Uh, we address, if, they're, if it's coming from any one or two establishments, we address it through the licensing tribunal, as I said. Right now, in the other entertainment districts in downtown Hamilton, no problem. But you know what? They're highly populated. I mean, there's a big, big crowd spilling onto the streets uh, uh, on King William uh, week, weekends especially, but you see it on the weeknights too. It's a very popular restaurant row. They have DJs. They have nightly entertainment. They have a good time on, on King William, and I, I'm, I'm very happy and, and very much support that, just as I do Little Augusta or James Street South with the wonderful uh, after-hours scene that's happening there with different clubs and restaurants and that sort of thing. If we... Why, why, are we, why don't we have a paid duty program there? I mean, that's part of the argument here. When does it, when does it stop? What, if we're the only city in Canada that I know of, and no one's been able to challenge me on this once in the last many years, that actually have this two-tiered tax, where does it stop? Where, 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 when do we decide that, you know, it's not just Hess Village now. We have a thriving scene over there in Little Augusta. We ought to have a six-officer paid duty program. And by the way, on King William, I'm seeing people spilling out onto the street. It's very dangerous. We ought to have two there. You can't, you can't do that. Police, obviously, are a taxpayer-supported service, just like garbage and, 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 and you know, any other public works division or recreation, and, and they police accordingly. Yeah, but this wasn't costing taxpayers. Obviously, this was costing bar owners, and it, it sounds as if they've lost or found a loophole in here too. Uh, well, this, that's this, the other part of it. Yeah. yeah, and and obviously that's that's just that's even more restrictive, I guess, to the people that still get stuck paid to the bill here. Uh, this goes to council next week, right? It does. Jay, thanks so much for this. Obviously, you're going to get some feedback from some folks, and uh, we'll see what happens in the meeting next week. I appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. Councilor Jason Farr for uh, the Ward Two downtown area. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, Premier was uh, at the uh, plowing match. Now, this is like a tradition in, in, in Ontario here. Uh, every year they have the plowing match, and uh, all three political leaders show up at uh, the international plowing match. 
And, uh, well, the, the Premier promised at that time that she was going to offer some incentives to small business to help them cope with the proposed uh, minimum wage hike, which, is, of course, is going up to 15 bucks an hour. I uh, didn't give any details on that. But it uh, it sounds as if they're starting to at least listen to some of the voices of concern that have been raised over the last little while. Among them, of course, a, a number of chambers of commerce, including the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Richard Corsell sits on the board for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about this. Richard, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. It's good to chat too. Thank you. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about where we are on this. You uh, joined us uh, weeks ago, I guess, uh, when this province uh, first made this announcement, and the Ontario Chamber was one of the first to speak up and say, "Whoa, whoa, just a second here. Uh, do you understand the ramifications?" And you sent letters to the government. Uh, the Hamilton Chamber, many other chambers have joined you on this. Uh, do you feel as if you're making some headway now when the Premier says something that, like, like she said yesterday, that that okay, we we can look at doing some things here to try to mitigate the impact? Well, we're we're always hopeful um, when we hear things like that that uh, we'll see something tangible come out of the out of the comments. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any any real sort of facts yet in terms of what what she's actually thinking. Um, but I can tell you that we have been working a lot with um, you know certainly with other members of cabinet in terms of issues that we think uh, that, that they could take into consideration. Uh, some of them we see still see as being a, a struggle. You know. The whole idea of trying to slow the pace down of this—we're not suggesting stopping it, but we're suggesting that let's let's take it over a little longer period of time, as many other jurisdictions have had to try and allow businesses to cope with the change. Uh, this is a very uh, big increase in a very short period of time um, that we haven't seen in, in a jurisdiction anywhere. I mean, even you look at the ones who have gone up—they've done it over a four or five-year period, and and we're certainly doing a lot faster. So that's a big concern. Um, we think there are other opportunities for them to, to make some change, but we don't know whether they're listening to those or not yet. So we're hopeful that we'll hear something. At the end of the day, though, our, our, big, con- our big concern is that we know, uh, based on the research that, that's been done, um, there's $23 billion uh, question that's got to be solved. Um, we, we also know or believe that, you know, yes, the $15 increment will drive economic activity, um, that will cover about half that amount. Uh, but we still have a $12 billion gap um, that we don't know how that's going to get dealt with. And, and I, I just don't see how, you know, what she's talking about um, in terms of some of the things that they could do would, would close that gap to any significant degree. Well, the concern here is, is this is so wide-ranging, though, Richard. I mean, yeah. you, you're talking about the impact it has on small business. Uh, yesterday I mentioned she was at the uh, the, the, the international plowing match, uh, and uh, one of the the voices of of concern was raised by the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. In other words, yeah. representing farmers, and they say, "Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! You don't really seem to under- because she's thinking, oh, this is going to be great. People that work on farms now are going to get a, an increase in the minimum wage.' But they're <laughs> they're echoing many of the same concerns that you did." Uh, where they say it's going to have an adverse effect on youth employment, it's going to make farmers less competitive, yeah. threaten, and, which could f- threaten food production and security, which raises prices. Uh, and and I, I know that when you started talking like this, and, and these other agencies did, the, frankly, the government was rather dismissive and say, oh, that's just fear-mongering. That's right. Are they starting to get the message? Is it starting to resonate now that maybe there is some concern here and some legitimate concern? Well, I think I think there is some recognition of that just based on the language we're hearing. But again, you know, we want to see what the details look like. You're right. I mean, look, a lot of the farmers are, are they're small businesses, just like a lot of other people are who are running other businesses. And so they, they're facing some of the same things. I mean, 
at the end of the day, this is going to cost them more money. They, they're going to have difficulty in hiring staff and bringing people in to help with, uh, you know, harvest time and, and uh, planting. So there's, there's lots of issues that are there in terms of how, do, how does small business, you know, including the farmers, how do they deal with uh, these big changes? And, and it's going to create some real heartburn in terms of how do we make some of that happen. Now, you know, there are things I think the government can do in helping uh, ease the blow a bit, but we're, we're, our concern is there's still a very large gap, um, and, and there's not even a discussion about what this does to the provincial government. We know that the provincial government is going to take a $440 million hit. And the municipal governments are going to take a $500 million hit. Yeah, but nobody's even talking about that. Nobody's even talking about that. So where's that money going to come from? So at the end of the day, they were either going to have to borrow it or they're going to have to come to you and I as the taxpayer and say, we need more. Because it's got to come from somewhere at the end of the day. And that's our frustration is that we just don't see any acknowledgement that that's an issue or even that we even have to deal with it. Well, and, and that's one of the frustrations that I've felt. And we've uh, talked to Ted McBeacon about that when he's been on the program. And, 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 and invariably, uh, one of the talking points, of course, of the province is you know, when they talk about people that work in, in, well, for instance, on farms or, you know, in, in coffee shops or whatever. And, and that's, that's, fan, that's fair game. I get that. Yeah. But they're ignoring the fact that they also are an employer. And the yeah, city of exactly. Hamilton is also an employer. And they do have employees that will fall under this umbrella and have to have wages increased. And, and you have to ask yourself, as you just said, where's the money going to come from? How are they going to pay for that? So it's it's one thing to talk about a boost in the economy. And if you give people a raise to, of the minimum wage, yes, they're going to have more money in their pockets. And yes, they're going to put it back into the economy. But if your property taxes are going up as a result of that, you got a concern. Well, it's not just property taxes. We're all we're going to see increase in, in costs across the board. Our, our estimate, uh, based on the Kensia work, is about $1,300 per family on average. So it's going to cost every one of us more money at the end of the day. Well, sure. I mean, you know, I want to see that person that uh, that's working in the grocery store. I want to see them make more money. That's that's the fair thing to do. I get that, but I have to be willing and and understanding of the fact that my bananas and my bread and everything else are going to cost more as a result of that. Because you know that the stores are not going to absorb that. They're simply going to pass it on to the consumer. And well, and where's right. that part of the conversation? Well, that's right. And then and so far we've seen an avoidance of that conversation. The other piece, of course, is it's nice to have that extra wage increase, but if you don't have a job, it doesn't matter a whole lot. And so at the end of the day, that's the other concern is that we see about 185,000 jobs at risk. And a lot of those will be in, in uh, the youth sector. A lot of women will be affected by this more than men. And so uh, we, we just don't see any conversation around how do we deal with some of those issues. So so what what do you want to see the government do here? They're not going to stop this. That's pretty obvious. Uh, and, and again, I understand this is going to be phased in. And, and phase one is going to happen before the provincial election. Yeah. Then the election starts next June. Of course, there'll be a provincial election. I'm not even going to go down that road as to predict who may or may not win that thing. So at least this first part is going to be in at this stage. Uh, are you looking for what other jurisdictions have done here, Richard? In other words, to expand this instead of trying to do this in 18 months, to do yeah. it over a longer period of time? Yeah, and there's, there are examples up there, um, certainly from the West Coast, in terms of how they've gone about doing this. And, it, and what they've done is their target's still the same, but they've slowed the process down. They do it over a longer period to allow industry and businesses to make adjustments along the way. Um, there are other things that we've, we, we've suggested to them in terms of the, some of the labor changes, because they're going to cost business more and restrict their ability to, to manage the way they've been managing. So at the end of the day, that again, that drives costs. And so we've suggested some things that they should 
uh, either not do or change the way they're going to do them. So um, that's why we're hoping now, because we've now presented all of these ideas, we're hoping to hear back more specifically what those, uh, what you know, what they're going to or be prepared to do, um, and then we can have a bit, another look and say, okay, what does that mean in terms of easing the pain? But then what's left? How do we deal with the balance? There's a, a little political shell game going on here too, and 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 I, I know that I've talked to you about this and Keenan Loomis, the Hamilton Chamber, about this as well, because the government's explanation for this, of course, is this is fairness and this needs to be done, and and I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. Uh, okay, right. fine, we should raise the minimum wage, but yeah. the obvious question is then why didn't they do it before? Uh, yeah. Why why wait till now, eighteen months before, well, less than a year now before the election, to yeah. make this announcement and and to incorporate these policies into play? And the response, because I'm getting different responses from different uh, people in the government about this, Richard, was, well, the time wasn't right. Well, in other words, you were worried about the ramifications, but you're not now? I, I don't get that. Well, I mean, uh, political parties do things for different reasons. And, um, you know, we, as you said, we are moving in an election period. You know, this whole wage, uh, incremental wage issue was dealt with a couple of years ago in, a, in consultation with uh, the Chamber of Commerce and other business organizations to look at how we could... Uh, provide a predictable increment in terms of the minimum wage. And there was an agreement back two years ago that we would uh, make adjustments every year based on CPI. And that process has been in play. That was what was agreed to. And part of our argument from a business perspective is, look, we need some understanding of what uh, what that looks like on a a go-forward basis so we can manage our business accordingly. Yeah, but that's what business needs to do. When you you say and tie this to the consumer price index, that's a hard and fast number, and it's not the government's number, and it's not your number, but it's a number that you can agree on and say, okay, that's going to be the baseline. And, yeah. and that's what we're going to base this on. But now what the government's doing is, yeah, I know we had that agreement, but we're just going to do it this way anyway. I know, and that's the, that's the frustrating part is we've gone through this, this discussion. We came to an agreement as to how we should go about doing this that everybody agreed to, and now here we are again. Let's just make a change. And it's, and it's not a, a small change. It's a very significant change. We're talking over 30% increase in cost of business over a very short period, like 18-month period. I mean, it's crazy. The concern here about job loss is is something I'm hearing from an awful lot of people in business, and and I know that again it's been it's been characterized by some people as simply fear mongering. But the problem is is there's no guarantee that it's not going to happen, and and I know that you know there's a big deal made about the guy that runs Metro that says you know we're going to replace all the cashiers yeah. with the self serve stuff, and, and they're doing that at Home Depot. That started long before this announcement was made. Uh, they were doing that anyway, so I, they, they're trying to hang that on here. There is a concern about job loss and about and about about livable wages and things of this nature. But at the same time, uh, I don't know that the government gets it that this is still a very tenuous economy that we're living in right now in Ontario. It's improved over where it was two years ago, but we're still on thin ice here. Yeah, that's right. And our and the other big concern for us is what does it do to our competitiveness as as a as a jurisdiction? So you look at the province of Ontario; somebody's doing business here when they can look at other locations and say, you know what, I can go somewhere else and I have a much easier uh, uh, go of it in terms of making my business work. And then those people who are looking for a place to go set up business, um, again, they look at uh, what's happening here and go, you know, there's there's two issues. One is it's a high-cost area to operate, and two, um, there's this instability that exists because we keep throwing these kinds of things at business. And, and this is not even, we haven't even talked about sort of the federal uh, tax issues that are now out there today. 
Um, so Ontario businesses are going to take a double whack here because of what's happening at a federal level and a provincial level. And so what does that do to business confidence? And and the and the uh, you know people who are investing in in businesses does that you know does it make sense for them to stay here or even come here? Well, there's another element to this too, and I know you've talked about this for the number of years you've been involved with the chamber. Is you can't look at something like this in isolation, and and I know the discussion and the debate is about okay this minimum wage increase, but if you're a business person, that's one element. You're also right. talking about hydro rates. Uh, you're right. also talking about cap the, the the cap and trade program that's gone yeah. into effect here, and 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 against the advice of of yourself, the chamber, and other businesses, uh, they haven't provided the same sort of incentives and 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 counterbalances that, for instance, BC did when they instituted their cap and trade yeah. program to make it uh, palatable for small business. So you add all that stuff together, and, and if I'm running a small business right now, I think I've got every right to be concerned. Yeah, well, that's right. And that's why we're hearing so many businesses uh, standing up and complaining about what's going on, and and um, that's why we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of pushback, and, and we need to continue to do that uh, so that we can try and see if we can uh, raise the awareness in terms of what the impacts might be, and therefore people will uh, be a little more realistic in their um, in their decision making in terms of, you know, let's let's be informed about the decisions we're making and the consequences that that will happen and how do we then manage the the downside of this in a better way uh, to minimize the impact. Well, yesterday the premier said that they were going to do something about this. Uh, take her at her word for the time being, but I wouldn't put the toolkit away yet, Richard. You still got some work to do. <laughs> You know, we, we're still at it, and we will stay hard at it. Thanks so much for this. Appreciate talking with you again today. Take care, Bill. Richard Corso, of course, from the, uh, the board of the uh, Ontario Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.